Okay. Blog Talk Radio. This is the Sunbury Press Authors Interview. I'm Van Carter. My guest is Mark Carlson. His book, The Marines Lost Squadron, The Odyssey of VMF-422. Sometimes I don't even have to search for the words. When I need to compliment something, I'll just use someone else's. Colonel Walter Boyne, United States Air Force, former curator of the National Air and Space Museum in the Smithsonian, and one of the foremost military aviation authors in the country calls this book a fast-moving revelation of a forgotten Second World War tragedy. Carlson's research is beyond par, a compelling read. You won't want to put it down. I can't improve on that, and there's no need for me to explain what the book is about because we have the book's author, Mark Carlson, to tell us all about it. Mr. Carlson, every time I sit down to read nonfiction, I worry about becoming bored. No such thing regarding your book. As the man said, I didn't want to put it down. You've turned 70-year-old heretofore hidden facts into an exciting adventure. Welcome. Thank you very much, Van. Glad, Van, glad to be on the show. Please summarize this old and covered-up tragedy for us. Well, the uh, it's generally known as the Flintlock disaster, and it took place in the last part of January 1944 in the Central Pacific near Tarawa Atoll, when the Marine Corps, the Army, and the Navy were gearing up for Operation Flintlock, which was the invasion of the Marshall Islands, which was supposed to be the largest uh, amphibious campaign so far in the Pacific. And several... Uh, big fleets and squadrons and air units and army and marine units were being assembled. And among them was a brand-new reserve marine squadron, PMF-422, which had just become operational in April of the previous year. Uh, so the squadron was, except for a few senior officers in the squadron, the captains had no combat experience, and they were in the Pacific to participate and in the latter part of the invasion when Kwajalein and Awitak and Ngebi Atolt had been taken. But they were sent down to from Tarawa to an island called Funafuti down at the end of the Ellis Island chain on the other side of the, um, the equator. And their very first time in the war zone. And they were sent down there and a routine ferry flight, but through a series of bad judgment calls, bad leadership, and bad luck, they ended up flying into a typhoon um, as big as the ones we've been seeing in the Caribbean and off the East Coast, 150-mile-an-hour winds and incredible winds and, and, and rain uh, that tore the squadron apart. And very few of them had any 
very few of them had any experience flying over water. That's right. They were they were very new at this, and at that time, the Marines and the Navy did not give these um, pilots a lot of overwater navigational experience because it was standard practice to provide a multi-engine escort plane on these long overwater flights. That was something that was regular policy, but in this case, it was refused. And these men made the flight without it, and it led to a, the worst non-combat loss of Marine squadron in the um, in the Second World War. And, and you're, we're talking about a, a squadron is 24 planes, and uh, 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 23 actually made the flight. That's correct. One was unable to take off because of engine trouble. So the uh, the 23 took off, and in three flights of eight, eight and seven. And, and they were, were flying. It was a beautiful day. They were flying but, brand new, uh, brand new uh, Corsairs, which was the the latest uh, the latest thing that the military ha- was was putting out. And the Corsairs were the really the first fighter that the uh, U.S. had produced, which was uh, really capable of handling the Japanese Zero fighter planes. It was one of the two, the Hellcat being the other. Uh, the Corsair was a superb fighter and interceptor and also turned out to be a fantastic fighter-bomber. The Navy originally did not want it because it had some teething problem, but the Marines loved it, and it became synonymous with the Marine squadrons. So these were a bunch of young pilots who were suddenly given this incredible hot new plane with powerful engines. They were proud as peacocks to go down there to fly these brand-new Corsairs into this uh, in this great campaign, they they didn't get the chance to do it, unfortunately. Um, but they said, not only a few of them had any combat experience. They, some who had flown in Midway and in the Guadalcanal, but the rest of them were all completely green. But they were eager to get at the Japanese. But the en- enemy they ended up facing did not carry guns and suicidal bombay charges. Their enemy was fate, bad leadership, bad judgment, and um, the wind, the capricious fury of a uh, Pacific storm. And more or less, the the military covered all this up all of this time, haven't they? Well, I I'm hesitant to use the term cover up. I am willing to accept that they did their best to just push it aside and get on with the war. Um. It did go all the way up to the Pentagon, because there was a board of inquiry that was held while this was still going on, even before the fate of the squadron had been determined. There was a naval inquiry going on at Tarawa, and pretty much most of the, most, I emphasize, of the truth came out. There were some other facts that didn't come out until later, and we know who was responsible, who made the decisions. Why? But the when the final decisions were made and the board's findings were finally released, it went up to Admiral Chester W. Nimitz, the commander-in-chief of the Pacific, then went to Admiral Ernest J. King, the uh, chief of naval operations at the Pentagon, and then even up to James Forrestal, who had just become secretary of the Navy. And they were all in, in agreement about the board's finding, but they were also in agreement that it should be Let's just say swept under the carpet. And because the man who was most responsible for the, the entire debacle, General Louis uh, G. Merritt of the uh, 4th Marine Defa- 
based defense air wing uh, had strong political connection that went all the way up to the White House. Uh, he was never court-martialed for the entire affair. He managed to keep his skirt nice and clean. And to this day, the survivors, there's only one left of the the few survivors of VMF-422. Not one of them ever accepted that Merritt was not court-martialed for what he did, that the loss of so many of their that's amazing that that so many of these uh boy we're talking old timers these 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 fellows some of these uh, survivors uh led long lives and you talked to some of them that's right i managed to find the last three living survivors of the debacle and um the only one left now lives in denver his name is um, colonel robert leonard he went by the name of curly um, he's a really wonderful man, and he provided me with a great deal of information. But uh, Colonel John Hansen and Lieutenant Ken Gunderson were the last three survivors of the Flintlock disaster, and they gave me a lot of great information and also helped, helped me find other things. This was a four-year odyssey in itself of yeah. uncovering the facts and learning as much as I could about this. And it's never been done before. Every article I ever found and read about it was incomplete and never really understood that what they actually flew into was a cyclone, a hurricane. It was always considered just a storm front, but it was a real hurricane. And I did speak to uh, probably the foremost hurricane expert in the Pacific um, at the University of Hawaii who really helped me understand what these things storms were like and how big they were and what happened inside them and what it's like flying inside them and i was really able to piece that together with all the written and personal accounts and it finally all made sense as to what happened to them well you did a really you did a you did a heck of an investigative job here and you and you talked to uh, a lot of the well most of the relevant people here the 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 bibliography in this thing is is quite something and uh that's why i'm i'm i was so surprised that it actually turned into a page turner <laughs> because usually when you're reading something with with a a big bibliography you know it's it it gets it can be pretty dry when uh, what i was saying about nonfiction but you uh you have a you have a nice style and you you breathed you breathed really good life into this story and and we were able to actually feel and sense uh the places uh and and even even the the conditions i mean you know you would you would talk about how the how the how the sunset looked and and things like that and it was it was very useful for reading well, thank you. That's that's an incredible compliment because that's exactly what I was going for. I wanted it to be enjoyable, entertaining as well as informative, and uh, that comes from writing novels as well because I, I've been writing for 25 years. It's it's got some of my writing style in there, but I wanted it to be something that pretty much anybody could pick up and learn, and not just be dry and so on. But it was. Um, it was a, a labor of love, no doubt about it, but it, it required well, the an other awful important, lot of nails and cold coffee. Yeah, <laughs> the other important thing that you did, Mark, was was you uh, you set the stage really well uh, historically. You you uh, you you walked us through the actually uh, the the actual uh, uh, 
uh, beginning of the air services in the military all told and and explained where the uh, where the Marines fit in and where they came from and and I mean this started like back in 1912 or something like that and uh, I, I you know most of this I, I, I you know did not know so it, it was it was extremely useful and then and then the the incredible uh, burgeoning of of the numbers because right up until uh, World War II there were what uh, less than 200 uh, marine aviators and uh, I, I I think you showed us the statistics that by by 1945 there were 10,000 that's yeah it was quite a leap uh, very much so um, I had to put I found that I could not make the, the story work just by beginning it with these guys being introduced at the beginning with their uh, joining marine aviation because the very role they were going to play in Operation Flintlock was part and parcel of the Marines' uh, role in the Pacific as uh, supporting ground and amphibious operations with the Navy and the Army. And in order to to show what they were intended to do and why they were trained a certain way, um, I wanted to give the background. Originally, that chapter was three times as long, but I kept trimming it until I thought, okay, this is enough to, to set the stage. But the other thing is that so many of my friends are Marines. Uh, I, nearly all of my friends are probably World War II uh, veterans, and so many of them are, are, are Marines. And I understand their mindset and the, uh, the elan and the, how they feel about the Corps. And I wanted that to be something that anybody could read it and really understood, understand what these men were like, what their mindset was, and especially the mindset of people who lived at that time and how much more patriotism, the, the duty to the job, to get the job done, to get the war finished and get on with their lives was extremely important to them. And uh, that's what I tried to make sure got in there so that, the reader would get to know these men like Breeze and Mac and uh, Curly and Ken and John and all the others so in a way that they would come away knowing them almost like favorite uncles, brothers, and, and close friends. And and back to your your storytelling and, and how you put things together. Uh, when, after they... Well, as as everything is happening, as as we finally get to you know the crux of the matter, and they have flown into this. Uh, uh, well, technically speaking, and that's the other thing that, that that you you did a nice job of helping us understand. We've got hurricanes over on this side of the Pacific. We got typhoons over on that side of the Pacific. But when you get when you get south of the equator, they're called cyclones. So technically, mm-hmm. these guys flew into a cyclone, but it was a typhoon. It was a hurricane. I mean, it was just different names, same same animal. But yes, exactly. I, I had to learn it. I really had to learn that kind of meteorology before I could write about it. And so I spent a lot of time studying it and, and talking with the experts so that I could really. Professor Gary Barnes was a fund of information. He really helped to show me exactly how these things really worked. And when it, I connected it with their personal accounts of what they were experiencing, 
uh, I could describe it well because they gave me great descriptions, but there was no. It was, I was operating in a vacuum. I didn't have anything to build on until I really understood what a cyclone is like. But aside from the, uh, the 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 three interviews that you were able to do with the extant uh, uh, members of of this squadron, uh, uh, I wasn't exactly clear of when before they had uh, someone had put together uh, their own documentary or something like that, and so you you had a lot of interviews from the others to to call upon too. That's correct. There was a documentary that was done by John Coleman, not the not the guy from San Diego Padres, a different John Coleman, who interviewed quite a few of the survivors back in '92 when there were several of them left. And um, it wasn't so much a documentary as a privately produced interview series. And I I had a copy of that that was given to me one by by one of the family members, uh, Mark Bree Serkin's son, Andy. He he was just fantastic in getting me so much. Uh, and then it was also one that was professionally produced that was paid for by the survivors called the Flintlock Disaster, and it was done by Triple Threat Production, which is available. And it's um, through those two I got more personal accounts than I would have if I was limited to the three men who actually did survive. And then there's it's a fair number of written accounts and so on, and a few magazine articles. So all together, and then of course I was able to come up with the original squadron history, which gave me a great timeline from the beginning of the squadron's birth until they disbanded. And uh, the most valuable piece of information, I didn't think I would get this, was the um, the actual transcript of the Board of Inquiry, which ran from... January 27th to February 10th, 1944, in Tarawa. I got the actual transcript and copies of all the exhibits and papers and letters that went all the way up to and were signed by Admiral King, Admiral Nimitz, and James Forrestal. So those things were, I got them through the Freedom of Information Act from the, the Judge Advocate General's office at the Washington Navy Yard. I really well, didn't I'm, believe I would be able to get it, but I did. I'm 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 really surprised about that myself. I'm uh, I'm an old reporter too, and the, uh, the Freedom of Information Act can. Uh, how long did that take from the from when you when you asked and and when you finally got an answer? Surprisingly, once I had a, a friend of mine who was a uh, Marine Colonel. He said, "Here's what you do," and he told me how to write the letter and how who to send it to, and I did. Uh, I emailed in, and then I got a phone call, and then saying, okay, we've got your request. We're going to look and see if we can find these things for you. Two days later, I got another phone call saying, how would you like these documents? Would you oh like my them goodness. in PDF, or do you want them sent? And I said, I couldn't believe it. And I, it happened so fast, I thought, this person can't possibly be working for the United States government. <laughs> And it was just amazing. And a, a few days later, I had it. And I spent the next two weeks scanning all of these documents into my computers so that I could turn them into text documents. And it was that was a lot of work, but I'll it bet. turned out to be a gold mine. I could not believe how much more I learned. And if I hadn't had that, this book wouldn't have been anywhere near as complete. I would have been doing a lot of guessing. The only well, thing I, I could not you. get. <laughs> the only thing I could not get was uh, General Merritt's um, service record. 
and the letter of censure that he received. That was the only thing I, and they said, you're not likely to ever get a hold of that. So yeah. I just said, okay, well, I, I can, I was very careful not to come right out and accuse or to make flat statements about uh, culpability, but I, I, I gave the fact that they existed and let the reader draw their own conclusions. But any, any intelligent reader is going to say, wow, this makes sense. Well, you're lucky but that you had uh, you had uh, inside help because, trust me, if you had been a news organization, it would have taken you months. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did get lucky, and I uh, I don't know if I'll ever have to do it again. But you know, it it was a gold mine. I just could not. But I think I was able to assemble everything that I have here in my office with me is the most complete uh, collection of records and documents. Uh, an account of the Flintlock disaster that's ever been assembled, at least since yeah. the war. Yeah. Well, another another uh, a nice uh, uh, touch that you put on everything was was you 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 really fleshed it out and and completed it by uh, telling the after story as well and and told uh, how this this squadron uh, once all of this was finally behind them. Uh, what happened to them as they went forward, and and new members coming in, and and still, uh, uh, and 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 really, uh, the, the sad some of the sad facts about uh, uh, some, you know a couple of the guys who had survived this this horrible ordeal, then end up. You know, uh, uh, some, one of them, I think, was what? Only a month later, uh, ended up uh, dying in combat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, one of them died in combat. One died in a crash when his wing folded up on takeoff, and another one um, pulled himself out of flying status because he had been so traumatized by it, he just couldn't fly over water anymore. So there were three more. Um, in all, there were nine casualties of the Flintlock disaster. It was um, it was quite traumatic. And, yeah, their, their time in combat is not something that would really be any, anything extraordinary. They flew many, many long-range missions bombing Japanese positions around the Marshalls and the Carolines. But uh, the most significant thing was that they actually flew with Charles Lindbergh when he was making his tour of the Pacific. And they flew three missions with Charles Lindbergh, um, in the Corsair, and he flew bombing missions with them, and that's in their flight logs. And that's something else that that unless you're, I guess, unless you're a history buff, you you just, I, I never knew that Charles Lindbergh went over there and flew combat missions. He did. He was in the Pacific for quite a while, but he was there unofficially. He was not there with any military rank. He didn't have wings on his khakis. Like that. If he'd ever been captured by the Japanese, he could have been considered a spy because he was technically still a civilian. Um, because of his problem with Roosevelt at the beginning of the war and its isolationist policy, Roosevelt had forbidden anybody to sign him up and let him rejoin the Air Force. And so he did it purely as a way of um, doing something for the war. And he taught a lot of pilots how to extend their fuel uh, usage and to to be more to carry more bombs and things like that. He did some extraordinary things, 
But uh, this this time with VMF 422, and I talked to a man who actually flew with him, actually knew him, and and you know, got him up on those missions, and actually flew combat with him. Why don't you explain just really briefly what VMF 422, what it all stands for, and how how that kind of designation works? Well, it's you're good. I'm glad you asked that because at the very end of the book, I do have a glossary of terms and also a uh, listing of acronyms. Yes. Um, F means fighter, and V is fixed wing or heavier than air. So in the Navy, VF means a fighter squadron. But MF, VMF, means Marine Fighter Squadron. And 422 was just one of the designations. Uh, 214 was the Black Sheep, for instance. Uh, so the Marines, the VMF 422 was known as the Flying Buccaneers. That was the name they gave themselves, and their emblem was of a, a pirate flying the back of a Corsair with a cutlass and pie patch and so on. And that was their their identity, and that, that emblem was painted by the Walt Disney Studios. Um, so VMF-422 was a reserve squadron that was formed in uh, at Santa Barbara, uh, Naval, Marine Corps Air Station Santa Barbara in uh, April 1943, and they trained and got together until they were completely assembled, and they were fitted with their plane to the end of August, and then they flew down to San Diego and eventually went to Hawaii, where they served in Hawaii and Midway until almost the end of almost Christmas. And then they were sent out to the Pacific. So they were eager to go. And they had these incredible hot new planes. And they, every one of them was completely sure that they were going to shoot down the whole Japanese Air Force. That didn't come until much later. The, the, the incident itself, when they, when they finally ended up uh, being, being just torn apart by, by this uh, cyclone that they flew into, uh, some of them were scattered, and it's it, it's such a such a wide array of experiences that that happened to them. Uh, one of the fellows, another one. I mean, you know, some of them uh, some of them uh, died probably pretty miserably, and yet uh, there was there was that one just ridiculous story. Yeah, of, Jake Wilson. Of, <laughs> of the fellow who who ended up with uh, uh, ended up in in a, in a native village with with uh, Protestant mm-hmm. Christian <laughs> natives, <laughs> English speaking, yeah. and and mm-hmm. and and they and they uh, and they tried to they all tried to marry their daughters off to him. It was crazy. Yeah, yeah, this guy was given the opportunity that every red-blooded American wanted at the time. On himself an island with, with, a, a, with an island chief, an elected chief, who said, well, I've got some beautiful daughters here. They're going to dance for you, and uh, after they dance, you can pick one of them for your wife, because they wanted to adopt him. <laughs> well, he was a very stout Southern Baptist. Uh, he had a sweetheart back home, and he didn't consider this that matrimonial news to be something he wanted to deal with, so he kept putting it off. But afterwards, all the other guys were saying, you lucky, you know, God, if it had been Bree Serkin, it would have been very different, but he, uh, he didn't get it. <laughs> he, so, he would yeah, have, he would have told the, the chief that he, he was going to have to sample everything Take before number, he made yeah. the decision. 
<laughs> yeah, take a number, right? Uh, yeah, it, that was one of the amazing stories. And uh, John Hansen, who was the only one who actually made it to Funafuti, he landed, and when he reached the island, uh, purely on good luck, um, mm-hmm. nobody knew who he was because the um, the island uh, operations had not been told this squadron was on the way. So there was a, a great deal of snafu in the whole situation. It was a very, very um, um, serious series of um, of mistakes, a chain reaction of causality and effect. It really caused some serious problems. And nobody knew these guys were coming out there, and by the time anybody realized it was, anything was wrong, it was far too late. And they were caught in this storm. They were scattered all over, and they were just struggling to survive. Well, knowing military acronyms like I do, I uh, rather than snafu, I, I think I would probably use the, the acronym FUBAR for this whole thing. Yeah, I would too, but we'd have to keep the keep it clean, fouled up beyond all recognition. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But snafu was more, more commonly used at the time, and uh, it's it really is an amazing occurrence. And, Piecing the piecing the the thing together over four years was like a detective story, and every time I found a little, I got so lucky finding some of these little pieces that fit, and and said, I've got it. I found something really significant. Now I understand this, and um, it was a, a truly a labor of love. I'm I just I'm still amazed that I was able to do it. Well, I'm 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 very impressed. Uh, not just because you were able to ferret out the story, but the way you were able to convey it uh, uh, made it. I mean, even even after everyone was was had crashed. <clears throat> excuse me. After everyone had crashed, uh, you 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 wove the tale in such a way that you would you would go from from this individual who was out there on his own by himself and then you'd 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 pop back to some of the fellows that were together and then and then and then we then we'd go spend some time with on the island with with Wilson and the girls and 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 back and forth and uh uh and and when they were finally found it wasn't even part of the regular search they were they were found by luck too that's right. Anton George Davidson of VP-53 was on anti-submarine patrol, which was about the most use, useless thing they could be doing at the time because there were no Japanese submarines in the area, and they were the ones that discovered them. And uh, he he landed and hit a huge wave and tore off one of his engines and badly damaged the PBY, and he got he, he picked these guys up in the teeth of another storm and... Uh, they all considered him their hero, and they they later made him an honorary marine. So it's, yeah. I've spoken with his widow, and uh, that that was one of the proudest things that he did. He was always great about felt great about what he'd been able to do to rescue these guys. Well, I know you don't want to give too much away, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm hoping I, this interests people enough to want to buy the book and uh, and to actually learn the whole story because we've just scratched the surface here. It's it's very interesting and it it was definitely a a page a page turner. Folks, Mark Carlson is an aviation historian and the author of two other award-winning books. He's been a contributing writer for over a dozen national magazines on various topics. You won't just read about being wrecked and adrift in the Pacific Ocean. You'll actually feel it. 
And you know what? Mark is legally blind. Another proof of the indomitability of the human spirit. Tell me, Mark, I know you can heft your book in your hands. Uh, can you discern it visually at all? No, I can't. I've had the cover when they were working on a cover design, for instance. I had some friends give me some suggestions, and the artist uh, pretty much followed what I wanted. So I, I know what it looks like. Uh, I can't see the pictures or anything like that. It's I'm holding the book. I I can only imagine it. Well, it's amazing because uh, at least the story you can see the story just as well as as we. And I appreciate that 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 you shared it with us. It's a fascinating tale, truly well told. Thanks for sharing your time with us. You're very welcome, Van. It was fantastic talking with you, and I feel really good about the questions you asked me. And I hope that uh, I hope people will read the Marine Law Squad and the Odyssey of VMF 422 and learn the story of these these boys who were the the cream of what America was like back during the Second World War. And uh, it's it's definitely my the work I'm most proud of, and I'm glad I was able to do it. I'm glad I was able to tell the story. At well, thanks a lot, Mark. Okay. Thank you very much, Dan. You have a great day. All right. This is a book you'll enjoy even if you're not a military buff. The human element throughout makes it at least as compelling as that last novel you read. Pick it up at Amazon or Barnes & Noble, wherever books are sold. The Marines' Last Squadron by Mark Carlson. This has been the author's interview from Sunbury Press.